Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Recording from my living room in beautiful Marietta, Georgia, you are listening to the Think Inclusive Podcast, Episode 11, brought to you by Brooks Publishing Company. I am your host, Tim Viegas. Today I will be speaking with Debbie Taub, an expert in the field of special education alternate assessment. For those of you who don't know, alternate assessment is the state test or portfolio that is administered or collected for students with the most significant cognitive disabilities around 1-2% to of all students in a typical school district. I had the pleasure of visiting with her one evening in February of this year. Debbie and I discuss what exactly is alternate assessment and what it's supposed to measure. In addition, we talk about how alternate assessment might be a gateway to more inclusive schools. At the end of the podcast, Debbie lists some resources that may be helpful for any educator wants to know more about modifying grade level curriculum for students with significant disabilities. All in all, we had a great conversation. So without further ado, let's get to the Think Inclusive podcast. Thanks for listening. Joining me on the Think Inclusive podcast uh, today is uh, Debbie Taub. Uh, she is the Director of Research at Keystone Alternate Assessment. Dr. Taub has designed, implemented, and evaluated alternate assessments for students with significant cognitive disabilities developed standard ba uh, standards-based curricula and instruction, and conducted validity and alignment evaluations. Uh, this work is informed by her experience as a classroom teacher and school reform specialist. She has contributed journal articles, book chapters, and numerous professional development trainings to the field of educating children with complex needs, and has presented internationally on working with students who have autism. She is an advisory member of the Council to Promote Self-Determination Education and Workforce Committee and an active member of the TASH Inclusive Education Committee. In addition, she is a member of the Council for Exceptional Children's CCSS Advisory Group and is a representative for TASH on the National Center on um, Universal Design for Learning's Task Force. 
So um, welcome to the podcast, Debbie. Thank you very much for taking time to speak with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. As I said, I really love your work, so I'm, I'm excited to be here. Well, thanks. Good, good. Well, um, uh, guess what? Um, I just completed, I, I, I'm a teacher, and I just completed my alternate assessment for <laughs> my kiddos. <laughs> so, so, <Yeah. laughs> so that is a big, um, you know, relief off of my shoulders. And I know that uh, for the for the educators that know what alternate assessment is and uh, do administer in whatever way in whatever state they're in um, it can be it can be a challenge depending on you know where you are and what you do um, so for mm -hmm. the you know for the the people that don't really know what alternate assessment is I know that there's a lot of people that know what assessment is you know they have state testing and and uh, you know, there's benchmark testing and everything like that. That seems to be familiar to everybody. Um, how would you, as a, as someone who works in the field, describe alternate assessment and what it is and what it's supposed to do? Wow, that's a lot of things. Okay, so or you um, can just tackle one thing, I guess. So, <laughs> <laughs> so alternate when when we talk about alternate assessments, we're talking about your large scale state assessments, so not the things that happen in your classroom, not the ones in just for classroom instruction, not the ones you use to look at your IEP goals, not the ones you use as a formative assessment, but the ones that are used for um, annual yearly progress under the ESEA federal regulation. Um, otherwise, there's no child left behind. Um, and there are a couple different ways that students can participate in, in assessments for AYP. One, they can take the, the assessment every, that most kids are taking, the, the general assessment without accommodations. Mm -hmm. Two, they can take the general assessment but with accommodations. Some states have a 2% modified assessment that the federal regs, the feds are trying to kind of phase out. Mm -hmm. um, so I won't really talk about that one. And then the, the other way is that they can take what's known as an alternate assessment based on alternate achievement standards. And that's for, as you said, because of the most significant cognitive disabilities. Right now, every state has a different assessment. Some people are using portfolios. Some people are using um, performance tasks. Some people are using a combination of observations and checklists. So there's a lot of different ways that states have built their alternate assessments. There are two consortia right now that are building alternate assessments based on the Common Core State Standards. Mm -hmm. They're called Dynamic Learning Maps, or DLM, and the National Centers and State Collaborative, or NICSIC. So that's kind of your basic instruction to alternate assessments. I'm trying to think what the rest of that question was. <laughs> well, what are well, they supposed to do? Well, yeah, <laughs> I guess, um, I guess, you know, let's back up and and say, you know, why should we test students with the most significant disabilities? You know, because that, that, that's a question yeah. actually I hear a lot. Yeah, and I hear it a ton. Um, so let me start with this. I think that there are problems right now with, with our accountability system. And there are things that we need to do differently as a country around education. Mm -hmm. But that being said, 
I have become a firm believer in the importance of assessing all kids. And I, I want to say I used to teach at the college level, and I was one of those professors who stood up in front of my students and said, I can't believe this no child left behind thing. They're going to make us tap these kids. What are they thinking? They're ridiculous. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. I was serious. Mm-hmm. And I started... I started really looking into it, and, and what changed my mind was I was doing some school reform work in a school that was really not doing well by its students. And um, the principal said to me, you know, I have all these special education teachers, half my school is special education, but I know nothing about special education, so I kind of just let them do what they want to do. Uh, but I need to change that because we're not doing well as a school. We're not doing well at all. And that's what AYP is showing us now that we have to assess all these kids. It's showing me that I'm not doing well by my kids. Mm-hmm. So we need to fix that. Come help me do that. And I went into this one classroom. And it was a fifth grade classroom. And their math class was the color triangle green. And that's what they did for two weeks. was just color triangle green. And this was a very good teacher in many ways. But that's what she knew to do for math for these students, was focus on identifying triangles over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So I worked with her, and, and we talked about how you could make a standards-based lesson that, that would actually, this state had a portfolio system. So how could you make a standards-based lesson that met the students' needs but was connected to the grade-level standards? And within three months, or not even that long, within six weeks, she came back to me and she said, I never would have believed it. This kid can do multiplication. This kid is doing like great things and he just needed different supports and he needed me to think about the content differently. And that's what had me start thinking about what, okay, maybe these assessments are not the evil thing I thought they were. Mm. And I'm hearing those kinds of stories all over the country of students who once challenged and provided with the accommodations and supports that they needed, they started getting more and more academics. And then, and this is the part I really love about it, the same teachers were saying to me, well, so if my kid can work on the same kinds of things with modifications and with supports and with accommodations, why do I have them in a segregated classroom? Mm-hmm. They should be with their peers. Yep. So alternate assessments for me became a really powerful way to help promote inclusive practices. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that aspect of it. Like I, and I never thought I would say that I love anything about an assessment system, <laughs> but like I loved that aspect of the alternate assessment system was that it could help provide better education for some of the students, um, higher expectations, a higher level of presumed confidence and, and then some teachers who never would have thought of inclusion for, for these particular students, even if they thought of inclusion for other students, they might not have thought of it for these kids. They started thinking, oh, well, yeah, if I had these supports and accommodations, sure, we could do that. So it became less about why my student can't, but rather what can I do to get my kid there? Right, right. Um... And you know that 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 way of thinking um, was actually what turned me around on um, the concept of alternate assessment. I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk, talk too much about the way that Georgia does it, <laughs> because I might mm-hmm. I might just 
rant the the entire evening. Um, <laughs> um, As but, I said, there are some problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, like I've told my colleagues um, who who do like to rant to me, uh, that I say, mm-hmm. look, um, I it, it's not that I have anything against alternate assessment. I like alternate assessment. Um, it's just the way that we it's just the way that we do it and also mm-hmm. the systems that are set up to support it it makes complete yeah. sense to me that giving access to the general curriculum uh, to students with significant disabilities should be done in a general education classroom or in an inclusive yeah. setting it does not make that much sense to me <laughs> um, to do it in a segregated classroom or a self-contained classroom, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, which I am, which I am a teacher of. So it's, you know, right. um, and, and one way that I've I've kind of worked around it uh, when when I've been able to is to do some like a hybrid type of co-teaching model where I would bring in um, like a fifth grade classroom along with the teacher and we would do a like a co-taught lesson uh based based on standards you know for fifth grade um uh, like a physical change and chemical change or something like that and we would do this science Mm -hmm. lesson uh where we would we would you know using uh the principles of universal design um have uh have a meaningful activity for my students as well as the typical fifth grade students and then um, be be able to use that for the alternate assessment, um, and that to me yeah. is the best way I have found to kind of get that done in a way that I think is meaningful, where where I'm not just mm-hmm. teaching in a vacuum. And that's what I've right. um, I've been trying to tell my my colleagues is that when we do this in our our room, uh, when it's just us. Um, I, I, I do feel like it's we're teaching in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things about you know the state I was working in with that particular teacher. One of the one of the performance dimensions of their assessment system was inter like different settings. Was the student able to generalize their skills and and do these things in different settings and peer interactions? Did they have interactions with peers who? didn't have disabilities and those things counted towards the student's score now that's unfortunately not included in most assessment systems for AYT anymore mm-hmm. um, some states may still include those dimensions for their state information but it's not reported to the federal government which is a shame I think because I think just like you're saying those those are some of the most we know research tells us that Students who take alternate assessments need help generalizing. They do do better when they are in with their same age peers and, and peers without disabilities. So by taking out those dimensions, I, I think I understand why they did it in terms of reliability and validity, but I think for a population of students, it may not have been the best decision. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because we do what we're tested on sometimes. And so for some teachers, it took out that requirement of saying, oh, you know, I could do this in a gen ed science class. Let's go do that. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, 
you know, it's it's definitely hard when you have, uh, you know, multi-age or multi-grade self-contained classrooms mm -hmm. and you are trying to generalize with, you know, in gen general education, you know, w with that kind of uh, varied um, age group. Um, uh, so, and like I said, I don't know, I don't know how other states do it. Um, but I, I think that's like the, the mechanics of it, the pragmatics of it, um, is what most people are, have a, have a problem with. It's not necessarily the, the theory behind it. Um, so, um, the couple questions come to mind. Um, one is how, how much does... Um, how students do on alternate assessment, how much does that affect AYP? Because I've heard a number of different things. <laughs> it depends on the school and it depends on the state. So, for instance, the, the school I was working in, um, or one of the schools I was working in, since half their kids were in, were in alternate assessment, it made a big difference if their kids scored well in an alternate assessment. Mm -hmm. um, the schools that only have a couple of kids who take the alternate, which if you're in a neighborhood school, that's what the natural um, proportion should be, usually are, is you just have a few kids. Right. Then the alternate assessment for that school doesn't, doesn't do too much for, for changing the overall AYP scores. Um, it may change you know, because they also report out by subgroups, so it may affect the subgroup scores, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so the state as a whole, we'll see what happens with these new assessments, but certainly there was, uh, there was a trend for a long time of students on the alternate assessment doing better than students on the general assessment. <laughs> More students were scoring proficient, advanced, than the students in the general assessment. Mm. So it, it, it's hard to say, and I think it's an interesting question. I think that the myth that students on the alternate pull down the scores is, is just that. It's a myth. We don't really have any evidence to, to show that on a large scale. Right. But that's what happens. Yeah, I know that that's a concern. That's something that, you know, administrators definitely, you know, at least worry about, um, yeah. you know, whether, like you said, if it if it is a myth, but um, it's something that at least gets talked about. Um, right. So oh, what I would also like to know is um, what kinds of alternate assessments are there currently? Um, so I, I've mentioned before that Georgia, uh, and I believe Alabama, uh, right next door, mm -hmm. is a portfolio assessment. H how many mm -hmm. other states that you're aware of um, are doing portfolio and and you know and, and other other kinds? If you if you know. Well, here's the problem with that question for me: it's that one state calls a portfolio, another state calls a performance task or a checklist. Hmm. Um, so there's not necessarily a, a straight answer to that. Okay. Um, I can tell you that many, many states are doing some form of portfolio, meaning that the teacher teaches a lesson, collects the work, 
and then uses scores that work, and that work is used to help inform what the what the um, alternate assessment scores are. Mm-hmm. Um, some people have a portfolio where they videotape the students, uh-huh. and then an, an outside, not the teacher, an outside score scores it. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that people have kind of taken that term portfolio and, and made it their own. Mm. Um, so it's hard to say, but you know, in general, there's portfolios where you have teacher collected, teacher created, and teacher collected work. There's performance tasks where it's like an item on a task, but the student has to do different steps, different um, skills and concepts, perform different skills and concepts. But all the students are kind of given the same task. How they access those tasks may differ based on their communication system or, or their their needs, but they're all given the same tasks. And then teachers can take that information and usually they'll include some evidence to support their score of how the student did on that task. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also performance checklists, which just have a list of all the different things that kids in the alternate may be doing or students in the alternate may be doing or should be doing at that grade level or grade band. Mm -hmm. And the teacher just checks it off. And then maybe they turn in a piece of evidence or two or three for one or two of those checklist pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, There's very few kind of item-based alternate assessments at the moment where, you know, you have a multiple choice question and you answer A, B, and C. That may be part of somebody's performance task. It may be part of somebody's portfolio, but it's not generally the sole measure of, of how a student's doing. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I can't answer specifically numbers on that one, though. No, that's fine. That's fine. Um because uh, as an educator, I you know I only know you know what's either around me or what I've experienced. So um, mm-hmm. I know that other people are curious, you know, as to that. Um, here's another question, a more uh, a kind of a history-based question about alternate assessment. Um, how long have we had alternate assessment um, in the United States? The passage of No Child Left Behind, which was, what, 1997, I think? That sounds right to me. Um, So since then, that's when we've had kind of federally mandated alternate assessments. Now, Kentucky started an alternate assessment system before that, um, because if you look at IDEA, one of the things IDEA says is that all students need to be included in um, instruction and accountability systems. And so Kentucky said, well, all means all, we're going to create a, a form of alternate assessment. So Kentucky was actually one of the first states to build an alternate assessment. Wow. And, um, yeah. And so they did it before it was required under No Child Left Behind. But we've had them for quite a while. And, and one of the things that I think is really important about alternate assessments and one of the reasons that it worries me when people talk about getting rid of alternate assessments and not not the federal government not states but when when people are grumpy 
and they say <laughs> we should just get rid of all of these things. Right. Um, one of the things that worries me is we have learned so much about this population of students in the past, what, 10, 15 years mm-hmm. that we never knew before because it just wasn't what we focused on. Um, so, for instance, when the alternative assessment started, we used to talk about how the students who make up the the 1% of the population who can who can achieve um, proficiency on the alternate assessment actually make up 99% of the diversity within schools, hmm. meaning that they are the most diverse group of kids they'll ever get together. Hmm. And yet, if you look at the research, um, Kleiner and Kearns and Tolls Reeves did some research on learner characteristics of students who take alternate assessments, and they've now done that research across 26 states, and the averages across those states have been pretty much the same in every state. Um, about 80% of those students who take the alternate assessment are using some form of symbolic communication, whether it be an AAC device or sign language or Braille or words. They're using some form of communication system, symbolic communication, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, approximately, let me see if I can pull up the numbers really quickly, but approximately um, 70 to 80% of the kids are reading at some level, whether it be basic sight words or being able to read and answer questions. Some of the kids in the alternate are actually able to answer pretty high-level questions, not just basic recall, but, but more instancing to the questions, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what we're finding is, is all this information about these students and, and also leading us to think about how do they best learn and what can we do to help them learn better and how do we present information to these students in a way that's meaningful for them and, and useful for them, um, but also that helps push our expectations as population students. Um, one of the things that I think is really powerful to think about is a lot of teachers really struggle with that I want to teach my kid dysfunctional skills. Mm-hmm. You know, why should I teach anything else? They just need to learn functional skills. And I have two, two big answers to that. And one is, First of all, what's more functional than reading and math? <laughs> True. And especially in this day and age, what is more functional than reading and math? And problem solving. And figuring out, if I don't know the answer, what do I do? Where do I go? Like, those are all things I taught my students. And I worked as a job coach for a while, and I, I can't tell you how many times I stood in front of audiences training on alternate assessments, and, and very, very concerned teachers came to me and said, well, I just don't understand why I should ever teach my kid an idiom. That's not what I need to work on in their life. They need to get a job. They need to do this. They need to do that. That's not what they should be working on. And I said, well, I understand what you're saying, but as a job coach, when, I, when my client's boss said to them, hey, you need to shake a leg, I needed my client to work faster, not stand there and shake a leg. <laughs> that's why it's important to teach my clients idioms. Like, that's why this is vital. Um, and also just for inclusive practices in the community. I want my students to grow up, and, and I taught elementary school, so 
you know, I, I didn't have transition age students uh, when I was teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted them to grow up and, and have friends and do things and go in the community and have a job and live in the community. So I wanted them to be able to have a conversation where they weren't thrown by words that weren't literal. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece of the the I should only teach functional skills, that's what we know, that's what we know works. When we first when when our field first started teaching students with the most complex needs functional skills, there was no research to back up that that was a good idea. We just as educators looked at the outcomes for our students and said, gosh, you know, teaching these developmental stages is not getting our our students jobs. It's not getting them to be as productive in, in the community as we want them to be. It's not getting them outcomes of friends and, and all of these other things. So there has to be a different way. And they started looking at teaching functional skills and this idea that we should look at what is it my, my student needs in the next natural setting to be successful. Those are the skills I should be working on now. Hmm. So... I, I understand the concern and I hear that concern, but I think we need to take a step back and, and look at what do we really want for our students and, and how do we want to help them achieve that. And also I think once in a while it's good to, to let go of things. You know, I've, I've been in high school classrooms where they're still working on identifying the letters of the alphabet. Because the student doesn't know the letters of the alphabet, and how will they ever learn to read if they don't know the letters of the alphabet? Well, if I'm in high school and I don't know the letters of the alphabet, maybe it's time to give me some kind of different support to help me read and understand. Right, exactly. Um, I think that, you know, it's it's very difficult um, as an educator when you have been teaching for a, a certain way for so long. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, to hear anybody talk about doing it a different way. Um, uh, especially, you know, let, you know, if, if I had been in, in the teaching profession for 30 years, um, and uh, cause that's what we started to do, you know, when you, you first got in the field, uh, that's what you did. You, you worked on functional skills and you worked on life skills. I mean, that's what you call it, you know, a life skills curriculum. Um, and that's actually what we still call it sometimes, <laughs> um, but, um, how do you, how do you think, or, you know, what is the best way, uh, to help people change their mindset? Um, because, um, I think for a lot of educators, they just don't have any concept of what you're talking about. Like, uh, like, right. okay, I'm supposed to be teaching them. You know, I'm supposed to be teaching them uh, multiplication, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how exactly am I supposed to do that? What, what advice do you give teachers or what resource or what, what exactly um, uh, do you tell teachers to help change their mindset? Well, it's a hard question because one of the things, so one of the other pieces of, of work that I do and I really love it is I help states and school districts build inclusive Systems. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that research has shown us and that practice has shown us is that you can't always change beliefs until you've changed the outcome, which means 
I can I can talk until I'm blue in the face about how important it is for kids to be included and how important it is for for us to teach academics. But until teachers see, or or not even just teachers, but family members who are concerned or or administrators who are concerned, until they see positive outcomes, to some people they're not going to change their mind until they see those positive outcomes. So right. sometimes you have to change the behavior before you can change the attitude and the belief. So one of the things that I do is I, I, and often when I'm in those situations, I'm in those situations because I've been brought in to help people teach grade level content that's, or, or grade level aligned content. Right. And so one of the things I'll say is, okay, we can have this philosophical discussion, but in the end, the law says, you have to teach grade-level aligned content. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So let me help you do that. I will support you in whatever way I can. I'm happy to brainstorm with you. I'm happy to problem-solve with you. I'm happy to put you in touch with other resources. There's lots of great um, trainings online. There's lots of great resources online. I don't want teachers to have to recreate the wheel every time you go to lessons especially not in this day and age. There's so many ways to share resources and share information. Let's do it. Absolutely. So if I have a teacher who's working on teaching Romeo and Juliet or Huckleberry Finn, I can point you to three or four different places where you can get adapted text online for free to help you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's... Uh, lessons, both of the consortia, Nixic and DLM, are building sample lessons and professional development resources for teachers on just that question. How do I teach aligned content to students with the most complex instructional needs, students with the most significant cognitive disabilities? How do I do that? Hmm. So there's, there's resources through both those consortia websites on how to do that. Um, I'm trying to think where else. I mean, Keystone has a, a web page just filled with resources that we try to collect each time we go out on on trainings or, or conferences or any time I learn things from new, from other people. Uh, we try to collect all the different resources and then put them up on our website. Here's some free resources on how to build communication systems. Here's free resources on how to how to teach math. Here's free resources on how to do science. You know. Just whatever I can put into people's hands to make their lives a little easier, I'm absolutely happy to do that and, and want to do that. So that's usually my approach. Just let's get down and dirty in terms of figuring out how to make this work because it shouldn't be about should the child or should the, or should the student or should the student not. It should be about how. Right, There are exactly. so many places and resources and, and technologies and supports out there it's, it's about how in the same age. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, uh, talking a little bit, you know, or I guess changing the focus a little bit to um, the general concept of inclusive education. What is your feeling... Mm-hmm. Um, what is your feeling about where we are going just as educate as uh, educational system in the United States? Um, do you feel like the move towards inclusive education is kind of this, just this inevitable thing that's going to happen or do we still need some key things to happen? Like, uh, you know, for instance, you know, do we need um, more specific legislation um, about LRE and, you know, in IDA, or do we need, you know, what exactly do we need to, to push this forward? Wow. You asked a hard question. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't provide you <laughs> with that one beforehand. So <laughs> <laughs> I see that because I, I'm, I'm having that conversation. I feel like almost daily now with, with people at cash and, and on the inclusive ed committee and, with various people who I'm working on some papers with, what do we need to do to move, move inclusive practices forward? Is it something that needs to be mandated from the Fed, which I'm not sure will ever happen because as a country, and especially in certain states, we are very tied to this idea of local control mm-hmm. and, and, and also to parental choice. So Absolutely. So you can't really mandate that all kids be included. And then there there are some people who who would struggle with how does that look and and that that that's hard. So you'd have to really put in a lot of support for the right. whole system across right. the nation to make inclusive practices successful or else what's gonna happen is we're gonna mandate it. Some people are going to fail miserably, and then it's going to become the impetus for saying, well, of course it's failing. It, it just doesn't work at all. And we know that's not true. We know that when it is done well and, and when it is done with the appropriate support and in, in the appropriate um, way, then all students do better. Students with and without disabilities do better. Right. I, I think that's, I think it's a very nuanced conversation, and it's a lot more nuanced yeah. than people give it credit for. Um, I, I, yeah. I, I've often said that that um, inclusion advocates are probably one of the the most misunderstood people in the education reform movement because we kind of have this mantra of all means all, right? Mm-hmm. And when people hear that they automatically equate it to the civil rights movement. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are some differences between the civil rights movement and the inclusive education movement or the disability rights movement. Uh, they're very similar and they're parallel in, in as far as I'm concerned. Um, but uh, 
there are systems and supports that need to be in place for us to be successful at inclusive education. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's something that you touched mm -hmm. on. Um, when we decide and we mandate and we say, okay, we are getting rid of all self-contained classrooms in every school right. across the country, some counties and some school districts will absolutely thrive in that, yep. in that situation. But like you said, others will fail miserably. And yep. it's just because... I mean, there's, there's a hundred reasons why, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. um, I think having that conversation and admitting that is a really good thing because mm -hmm. people need to hear that that's not what we're trying to do. At least the, I think the people that are really serious about doing it right, that's not what we want to do. Um, mm -hmm. um, I had a conversation, um, with, uh, this uh, Englishman, <laughs> Alan Scher, um, who I've written about, and he wrote a play called uh, "The Death." Of, I believe I hope I'm saying this right. Uh, the Death of a Nightingale, and how um, how they went about moving inclusive education forward in the UK um, was very much let's get rid of all special schools, all self-contained classrooms, and let's do it now, um, mm -hmm. and um, and you have some parents who were very upset by that and educators. Um, and so I, I want to make sure that it, as, as the United States moves forward, which I believe that we should, which, which we should do, right. that, that we need to do it smartly and with the correct yeah. supports. And that's why I love the Swift schools and I love, um, yeah. you know, all the coalitions for inclusive education all around the country um, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of beating the drum and, and, uh, and waking people up to that. This is, a, this is a good thing. Um, but I also don't want to go the way of, um, you know, setting us up for failure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think that I've been, been lucky to be part of some really great, exciting work in different states. And one state I'm, I'm working with, one of the ways that they're helping their center-based schools see the power of inclusive practices is they're approaching it from, we know you have to teach these new standards. We know you have to teach grade level aligned, you know, content aligned to these standards and, and aligned to grade level, which is something that some of you may not have done. So here's some supports we can give you. And, and one of those supports is connecting you with content specialists and with other schools and through kind of pathways like that, these schools are, and these teachers in these schools and the administrators are starting to see, oh, it's not that bad. It's not that scary. Mm -hmm. We might be able to do this. And, and that's one of the things that really has become concerning to me in the past few years. I, I have a friend who who called me up one day and her daughter has been in an inclusive school or an inclusive class, which I always thought was kind of weird, but she was in an inclusive class and she has some language concerns and she has ADHD. Um, but nowhere near as, as significant as the kids you and I would work with. I mean, 
typically in our day. Right. And she called me one day, and she was in tears, and she said, I was just pulled aside by the principal and the teacher, and they told me my daughter needs to go into a special ed segregated classroom next year because she's just too not doing well in this classroom. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was floored, and I went to, to visit the school and see what was going on and, and talk to them. And the fear-mongering that they instilled into this poor parent I was horrified because what they kept saying in the nicest possible way they could was, if you put your child with this special education teacher, she's going to be nice to them, to her. If you put your kid with the general ed teacher, she won't be nice to her. Right. (laughs) And (laughs) I think think that kind of um, fear-mongering that some schools or, or teachers, and I don't know that they do it intentionally, but it's so easy as a parent to, to want, I mean, it's not even easy. It, as a parent, you want what's best for your kid. And, and as a relatively new parent, I'm certainly learning whole new aspects of this in my life. But when somebody says to you, if you put your kid in this segregated classroom, they're going to get all these other wonderful therapies and all these under, other wonderful services. But there's, there's no reason, and, and there was no expectation in writing the least restrictive environment laws and statutes. There was no expectation that that had to happen in the segregated classroom. That was supposed to be a continuum of services, not necessarily a continuum of placement. Mm. And yet some people have really kind of bought into or, or, or truly believe in this idea of a continuum of placements and that if you're in the segregated placement, that's where you get the most services. Right. And there's no way they can, can envision putting those services into a general ed setting. And, and then the outcome of that is, is telling parents, well, they're going to get a better education if they're over there. Well, research shows they're not going to get a better education if they're over there. You know, they're, they're, they're going to get a different education, they, but if you want your student, if you want your child to have access to the content, you know, Waymire, Michael Waymire did some really interesting research on levels of, um, and I'm blanking on the word, it's not levels, but like how well students were given access to the content, right. and it's done much better in the general ed setting. Well, yeah, of course, because yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that's something that I've, I've talked to my colleagues too. Is that um, yeah. as a as a self contained teacher, I understand the pace of my classroom, and the pace mm-hmm. is you know is slow. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, um, I physically cannot run my classroom like a general ed classroom because <laughs> I have. You know, I have I have things that need to happen, right. whether they're physical, you know, needs that are taken mm-hmm. care of or whatever. I don't want to go to too much into detail, but right, right. Um, but when you have, you know, one of my students in a general education room, they are it's just things are flying, you know, and the content yeah. is flying, and they're exposed to so much that they would never be exposed in my classroom even if I even if I did teach all the standards you know right. all day every day you know what I mean um, right. oh yeah oh yeah you've got so many things going on in in your classroom and 
I think one of the other pieces of that is we also have a lot of teachers who, for whatever reason, didn't have to take content courses in order to get their degrees in special education. Mm, yeah. So I know I chose to take, uh, as an elective, I took courses in teaching reading and teaching math, but it was not a requirement in the program I went through. Like, how is that possible? And then I would be in charge of teaching my kids content? Right. Well, isn't that a problem with um, our teacher training? <laughs> well, yeah. that's, I mean, yeah. okay, there's a problem with teacher training, I think, in general, right? But then there's yeah. also a problem with teacher training in, in the field of special education. And, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I got my credentials in, in moderate severe disabilities, but, um, so that's what I'm most familiar with, but I know that there's right. issues when you're talking about, you know, um, mild dis or learning disabilities and how they, how they mm -hmm. teach and the standards, you know, for, for the programs. Right. Um, so that's probably a whole other show. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> education is such a complex being. And, and I remember when I first started doing education research, I struggled with this idea of causal effects in education because I can say that all these teachers went to like X professional development and that caused them to change their teaching behaviors. And then that caused their students' scores to go up and, and their knowledge about to, to improve, but it could also be 40 other things. Mm -hmm. It could be that they all happen to take the same theater class and that that theater class in, in, informed their understanding of Shakespeare. It could be that there was a Shakespeare festival in their town that all of their parents took them to. It could be, you know, so there's so many factors that go into a child and, and their education. It's hard to say it's this one piece, and yet we have such clear correlational data that shows that kids with all disabilities and kids without disabilities do better in inclusive settings, mm -hmm. but it's hard to make that quantitative because you have to take in all these other variables. Right. Well, that isn't that isn't only a, a you know a special education problem. <laughs> that is no, a, it's definitely not. That is a, a just a in a general way a education problem because they're because right. they're dealing with that with um, just with testing and you know um, yeah. with the different states. You know, um, I I think that I think then that way we have something in common. You know, those who the, those mm -hmm. that are in the field of special education, mm -hmm. um, we have that in common that we can go to our general ed, you know, colleagues and we can yeah. talk about the same issues, um, that they're, that they're dealing with. Um, right. uh, and, and something that I've really just learned, you know, in the last few years is that when you, when you actually do create, um, relationships with your general ed colleagues that, mm -hmm. um, you become a better teacher, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, it's yeah. so easy to be a, the self-contained teacher, you know, and no one expects anything from you. You're just with those kids. Yeah. 
and that no one knows what you do, you know, you might as well, <laughs> you might as well, I don't know, be doing whatever you want and, um, and they would never know right. it. Uh, but once you start opening yourself up to having those relationships and, and maybe creating those co-teaching partners and, um, it just changes your perspective. Um, I think so, right. you know, I'm for inclusive education, but also, I'm also for, um, you know, including yourself in your school community as, as an educator, because I think that is, that is huge, you know, and not yeah. just sitting at the special ed table. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's very, very big to, um, for, for teachers to lucky when I when I first started teaching so I was a little naive I will admit that so when I first started teaching I didn't realize that not everybody did inclusion because where I went to school and 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 all the places where I had worked when I was teaching and in student teaching and doing volunteer work and I worked in several different early childhood intervention programs they all did inclusion so I just naively assumed that's what everybody did right so I got my first job and I went into the school and I started talking to all these teachers about when I was going to be in their classroom and how I was going to work it and all these other things. And it wasn't until halfway through the year and I was really struggling with this one teacher and we just were having a tough time working together. And I said to her, explain to me why this is so hard because I'm, I'm not understanding what, what you need. And she looked at me and she said, you know, nobody's ever done this inclusion thing before. I took these kids and let them be in my class because I assumed I'd never see them. And that's, I went back to the other teachers I worked with and I said, wait a minute. So you guys didn't do this last year? And they said, oh, no, no, no. You know, everybody just took their kids and took them out and that's what we did. Hmm. And I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. So nobody's ever done this before. And yet I look at how much I learned from those other teachers. Strategies I never would have thought to use. Right. Concepts I never would have thought to teach. Skills I never, and lessons that I got. The most amazing lessons on how to teach science. And I was so lucky. I got to work with you know one of the science teachers of the year in our state. So I got all these great science lessons from her. I worked with a woman who was like a 25-year-old veteran in teaching math, and she had fantastic strategies for teaching math. I never would have thought of. Mm. And so I, I look back at that, and I think, thank God I was so naive that I just assumed I'd be in these classrooms, because that, that interaction with those teachers taught me so much more than I ever would have learned if I had just gone into a classroom and closed my door. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Um, in fact, uh, that's one of the things that uh, has helped me in my in actually teaching content to my kids is um, not looking up, you know, lesson plans on the computer, but to go to my fourth grade counterpart and say, "How would you teach mm -hmm. this lesson?" Because I have no idea, okay. <laughs> you know. And then right. they would, and they right. would, and they would say. Oh, you do this or this or, you know, or this is how mm -hmm. I would teach it to my kids. And then, and then it makes sense. Like, oh, I can adapt that, you know, for, yep. you know, this student or this student. 
I really wish right. I had the time to do that more. And I think that's part of the issue too, is that collaboration mm-hmm. piece. We just don't get enough time to do that. Um, right. um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that, uh, you know, I wish, I wish we had more of, but that's definitely something, yeah. you know, that, that whole collaboration. So that definitely resonates with me uh, with, with what yeah. you're talking about. And I do think that for those states moving to the common core state standards, if they're going to do that and they're going to do it right, collaboration should be something they're all looking into because that's one of the big points of, of common core is that you're supposed to be teaching literacy across content areas. Mm-hmm. So that means you better have teachers talking to each other or else what, how will you know that you're covering all those standards? How will you know you're addressing all those issues? How will you know that your students are getting a holistic education? And that includes special education. Right. Um, we have so much to teach general ed teachers too. Well, yeah, yeah, and I think that's you know, it's 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 all part of it. Um, it's getting mm-hmm. um, it's getting those conversations going, and uh, and also yeah. having them see special ed teachers as real teachers. <laughs> you know, I think that's that's you know been part of it and you know we seclude we seclude ourselves so um mm-hmm. and i can only sp- i can speak for myself because that you know because i i have done right. that before um well uh i i want to wrap up with one more question um this has been an awesome conversation um you know thanks again for for being with us um well thank you again for having me this has been fun so i want i want to know um you know, for a teacher or educator um, or even parent that is struggling to, to, to figure out where do I go to learn more about how I can give access to the curriculum to my, to my student with significant needs, mm-hmm. what would be the number one go-to place number one. or two or three? I don't know. <laughs> like, where, <laughs> where would you send, where would you send them? Be like, okay, you need to go check this out. Well, that's hard for me because I don't want to sound like I'm promoting me, but like in, in our company, but like that's what Keystone Assessment does. We help people build acceptability and, and, and um, to, the, to the standard. But if I had to point you to just one place, I don't know. It's, there, there isn't just one place. There's so many places you can begin. You can begin with places like Cash and 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 Peak and the parent organizations. You can begin with places um, like um, Cast and UDL. You can begin with places such as um, the coalition, the the inclusive coalition with is another great place. Um, but if you're looking specifically for content, that is definitely harder. Uh, looking at the two consortiums for content would be a place to start. Um, looking at the National Alternate Assessment Center, NACPartners.org, they have some really good trainings on how to, how to align the content and what that might look like for students with significant cognitive disabilities. So I guess if I had to pick one, 
I would probably start with Mac because I just think they have some really powerful good stuff out there. Okay. And they'll also lead you to a lot of other resources. Excellent. Uh, well, I'll try and um, put all of the um, the links and the, the organizations that we talked about on the, the show notes page so that when people listen to it, they can know where to find those things. Um, awesome. So, but once again, thank you, uh, Debbie, um, for being thank here. Thank you, Tim. This is great. And you're doing such fabulous work. I love getting your, your updates and seeing, you know, the, the, the stories that you're sending and the, the research and pieces like that. It's, it's been fabulous quality. Well, it's my pleasure. That concludes this edition of the Think Inclusive podcast. For more information about Debbie Taub, you can follow her on Twitter at D-E-B-B-I-E-T-A-U-B or visit keystoneassessment.com for resources on how to make any content accessible. Remember, you can always find us on Twitter at think underscore inclusive or on the web at thinkinclusive.us. Please visit our sponsor at brookspublishing.com and receive 25% off your order using the promo code TIMBD25. Today's show was produced by myself talking into USB headphones, a MacBook Pro, GarageBand, and a Skype account. Bumper music by Jose Galvez with the song Press. You can find it on iTunes. You can also subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via the iTunes Music Store or Podomatic.com, the largest community of independent podcasters on the planet. From Marietta, Georgia, please join us again on the Think Inclusive podcast. Thanks for your time and attention. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.